As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Uh, Our Father in heaven, uh, we're grateful for your word. Um, This is our rule uh, for life and for godliness. Uh, We know that it's infallible, uh, that there's no errors in it, that it's completely and utterly trustworthy. And it's sufficient for us. We need nothing else but your word and spirit. Your word working by your spirit to lead us, to teach us, to transform us, to renew us, to give us life. And so, Father, we pray now as we hear this word that it would be, in fact, life to us um, and that we would live from it. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Exodus in chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, please. I want to continue reading. I've been reading this chapter, and I'll continue with verse 13. Exodus chapter 3, please. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel shall Go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. The grass withers and flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. There you go. You almost forgot. Thank you. Um, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, he must be going to preach through Exodus. But why did he start in chapter 3? I'm not going to preach through Exodus. I'm actually going to preach through seven passages, at least, in the Gospel of John. So you might then say, well, why are you starting in Exodus chapter 3? Because the passages that I want to preach from in the Gospel of John 
are classically known as the I am sayings of Jesus. Um, you know them because I cite them often. That I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, and I'm the door, and I'm the good shepherd, and I'm the resurrection and the life, and I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and I'm the true vine. Those are sayings in which Jesus invokes the name of God as he describes himself, I am, he says. Now the reason I'm going to preach through those passages are rather personal to me at this moment. But suffice it to say that these were passages that in the Gospel of John that were formative, really, in my life, especially in my 20s. And they continue to be now that I'm in my 30s. <laughs> right? And so I, I want, if God will help me, um, to share these at this point. And I've begun in chapter 3 of Exodus, I hope now, for obvious reasons. Because this is the beginning of this expression, I am, as God gives his name to Moses and to the people uh, of Israel. You're likely to know the context. I've been reading it for you throughout the, the service thus far. And we find Moses, we know Moses, we find Moses uh, at this bush that is burning but not being consumed. I often wonder these days when we mention things like the burning bush, if people really get the reference. You all, I suspect, do. Many of you grew up in church, so you colored this in Sunday school, and you've been thinking about it since then. You know what that expression means, the burning bush. Interesting, the bush wasn't really burning, but there was a fire in the bush itself there, you, you know the reference. Of course, uh, many of us know that this is actually on the seal of the University of Kansas. It's from a sculpture or whatever taken uh, even uh, uh, in front of the religion building with Moses on his knees and this fire bush uh, in front of him uh, on the wall. Uh, really, the, it's not really well understood. The, the explanation at the university is this. It says, it, that is the seal of Moses, pictures Moses kneeling in awe before a bush engulfed in flames. The translation of the Latin inscription on the seal is, I will see this great vision in which the bush does not burn. That's pretty good. But then it goes on. The story of Moses' vision is from the third chapter in Exodus in the Bible. Fire symbolizes knowledge in many stories and myths. Moses is thought to represent the humble attitude of the scholar who recognizes the unquenchable nature of the pursuit of truth and knowledge. Not, not, not really. Um, not really. Um, Moses, um, I mean, uh, Disney did it better in their cartoon, The Prince of Egypt, actually. Uh, they actually got it, I, I think, better. But, but I wonder how, how well-known this is. I suspect culturally, except amongst us these days, it's increasingly less well-known, that expression, the burning bush. Uh, we know you, you know how we got here, or at least the scripture did. You might remember that when God called Abraham and made a covenant with him, he actually uh, foretold this 
event um, in Genesis in chapter 15, verse 12, as, as Abraham is, is receiving from God and this covenant is being made. It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. He wasn't quite yet Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And so you remember Abraham then had a son Isaac and then, and then Jacob and Jacob had 12 sons and you remember then that one of those sons, Joseph, had dreams and he wasn't quite oh, savvy enough when he told his brothers about those dreams. And they sort of had their brothers bowing down to their younger brother. And uh, that wasn't taken very well. And so uh, they ended up uh, selling him into slavery, which was better than their original plan, which was to kill him. And so they sold him into slavery. And you might remember that after having been purchased that he ended up, Joseph did, being second in command in Egypt. And there was, as he knew there was going to be because of a dream that he had interpreted, a a famine in the land. But because of Joseph's interpretation of the Pharaoh's dream, in the seven good years they had laid aside sufficient. And so Egypt had food even during this famine time. The sons of Jacob that were left learned that there was food in Egypt. And so they did a scouting expedition to Egypt to see if they could get food. And upon that expedition, they were reunited, surprisingly to them, to their brother, Joseph. And then the whole family then moved to Egypt and were cared for by the provision of their younger brother, Joseph, um, in Egypt. And they multiplied. Um, They grew in number and strength and significance in Egypt, so much so that the Egyptian pharaoh became ultimately afraid of this group of people, afraid that if enemies attacked Egypt, that this group of Israelites would side with their enemies and overtake Egypt. And so uh, he enslaved them and made them the slaves of Egypt. And to keep them from multiplying so rapidly, he commanded the midwives amongst the Hebrews to kill uh, all the infant boys, let the girls live, but the boys would be killed. Of course, the Israelite midwives uh, did not do that. Uh, They made up this excuse that the uh, Hebrew women were strong and their babies were, were quite Strong, and so they they came too fast, and they couldn't get there in time, and so these little boys began to grow up. One of those boys was a little boy named Moses, whose mother then, when he got old enough to save his, when he got old enough, she was afraid that he would be known. So they, to save his life, put him in a little basket, put him in the Nile River. It just so happened that the daughter of Pharaoh happened to be bathing there that day, and saw him, just so happened that Moses' older sister was watching all of this, just so happened that, that when Pharaoh's daughter took uh, this little baby, uh, Moses' sister came to her and said, do you need a nurse for her? And she said, yes. And so she fetched a nurse for her, who just happened to be 
Moses' mother. And so he was raised there with the influence of his mother in the household of, of Pharaoh. Then you remember that when Moses was an adult, a young man, he saw that there was an Egyptian who was um, beating on a Hebrew slave. And Moses was incensed and he killed that Egyptian. He covered it up, he buried him and so forth, hoping no one would know what he had done because he was from the household of Pharaoh, really. And, and, and then on another day, he saw two Hebrews fighting amongst themselves and he intervened and he said, what are you doing? Don't you understand that you're brothers? And they said, what are you, what are you our judge? Are you going to kill us like you did that Egyptian? And at that point, Moses realized that it was known, at least among some, that he had killed the Egyptian, feared for his own life, and he ran. And he ran to a place called Midian, and he stayed there for 40 years and uh, married the priest of Midian, and uh, he, a daughter of the priest of Midian, and he uh, lived there as a shepherd for 40 years. And now he finds himself in front of this bush that's aflame with God. And there he is. Now, he takes off his shoes as he's instructed to do, because he's on holy ground. And we get a sense here of the transcendence of God, the great power of God. But we also get a sense of the imminence of God, that is, he's right here. He's not only above us, but he's with us as well. He's both of those things. And and we get that. Sometimes we even feel that God is beyond it, and we can't really get to him. And other times we we know very well his presence. But, But here he is in both of those transcendent, the very power of God, God Almighty, and also God very personal, because he's there with Moses, and he even says, I I have seen my people, I've heard their cry, I know their suffering, I've come down, I'm right here, and now he says to Moses, I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you. And here Moses has two questions for God. There's a sense in which God gives him the same answer to each question. Now, the first question, uh, we can see it here in verse, in verse 11. Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? That's Joseph's question. I mean, uh, Moses' question. Who, who am I? I mean, you, you get a sense in which he's saying, uh, in one sense, perhaps, I'm not, I can't do this. I mean, this is a big job. I'm, I'm to go back to Egypt and I'm going to square off with a Pharaoh and I'm going to tell him that I'm going to plead, deplete him of his most uh, lucrative, his most, uh, the, the, the resource, the slaves that contribute most to his economy and his well-being. And I'm supposed to do that. Who, who really, who really am I? might even be thinking the Egyptians, if they find out I killed one of them, uh, won't be favorable to me. And, and, and my people, the Hebrews, realize I deserted them. And so, so who am I really to, 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 to go into this, into this situation? And, and that's a question, isn't it? It's a question that we ask of ourselves. Who am I, period? Who am I? Who am I? 
who were encouraged even in the midst of our culture to ask that question and, and to give an answer to it, to determine really an answer to who I really am. And so we, we attempt to define ourselves in various ways. We might define ourselves by, by something external to us in the sense that we define ourselves by, by, by the country in which we were born or the city in which we were born or, or the parents to which we were born. And that helps. I'm this, that, you know, I'm, I'm from this place. I belong to this family and that identifies me. That's my identity. We might identify ourselves, define ourselves by something that we do, by our vacation or, or our passion, by something that we love or to run or to, 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 um, to have possessions or where many define themselves in our day by their sexual attraction, their sexual preference. And we define ourselves and we say, this is who I am. And, and this will satisfy me. This will complete me. This is, this is who I am. Now, the difficulty in this self-definition is what happens if something changes in that? What happens if I define myself as a person of a particular vocation and I then no longer can be in that vocation? What happens if I define myself from a particular family and yet those I love pass away? What happens if I define myself as being from a particular place that I move? <laughs> what happens if I define myself by a, a particular uh, uh, passion that I can no longer participate in? I see myself as a runner, but I'm no longer that. I can't do that anymore. What happens to my identity? Who am I then, really? And the difficulty with this self-definition, quite frankly, is that we were never meant to define ourselves. We were never given that responsibility or privilege. That God is the one who is to define us. And so I suppose God could come to Moses here and kind of uh, try to increase his confidence, increase his self-esteem by saying, Moses, you're exactly the guy for this. I mean, after all, you grew up in Pharaoh's house and, and, and you know him well. You, you know how he operates and how he works. And, and also you're a Hebrew, so you have empathy for the Hebrews. You have empathy for that people. And surely of all people, you would want to see them uh, uh, delivered from this, this slavery. Moses, you're the man. You can really do this. You're exactly the one. Or he could say, Moses, this is who you are. Moses, you're a man. And you're a man with whom I am. I'm with you. That's your identity. I'm your identity. You belong to me. I will satisfy you. I will be all that you need. Identify with me. Your identity is you're a man in whom God, with whom God is. And then you see, uh, with that, Moses understood well who he was. You see, that's what God tells us our identity is really. He defines us. We're identified with him. One author put it like this. God says, I will be with you. You can walk through life with me. You can base your sense of self on your knowledge of me. Find your confidence and worth in knowing that I am there for you and here with you. 
you can know that I'm with you. And your achievements and your failures will not affect that status. I will be with you. Moses asked the question, who am I? God says, this is who you are. I am with you. That's who you are. But then he has another question. You can notice it in in verse uh, 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Basically, God is saying, I mean, Moses is saying to God, identify yourself. Who who are you really? There's all kinds of gods out there. The the, the Egyptians have all kinds of gods and their gods have names. They know the names of their gods. And so who are you? Identify yourself. And in the identity of yourself, God, you'll help us to know who you really are. And so what is your name? Who are you really? And God essentially gives... The same answer, I am. I mean, we find it here, I am who I am. Interesting, when God says, give me your name, um, God gives him a verb. Uh, The verb to be, this verb of existence. He says, I be who I be, essentially. (laughs) I am who I am. And then he shortens it later. Then he says, uh, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And, and then he shorts, shortens it again by giving himself a name that's based upon this expression. And you can see it in verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. And, and uh, most uh, translations, most versions that we have, uh, that's in capital letters. Um, and you can see uh, the notes, at least, I have in mind. It says, when the word Lord, when spelled with capital letters, stands for the divine name Yahweh, which is here connected to the verb Hayah, which means to be in verse 14. You don't have to be a Hebrew scholar to know that. Your Bibles will tell you that. So just, you know. And, and so there it is. He's saying, I am who I am. You can also translate that as, I have been who I have been. And I am who I am. And I will be who I will be. That's a funny name. I mean, it just, it's just, this is fascinating to think about that. And, and what's God saying? He simply says, I am. I'm self-existent. That is, that nothing created me, nothing made me. I am. I simply am. I've always been. I always will be. Uh, nothing has made me. I need no one, nothing. Uh, I'm complete in and of, in and of myself. I'm self-existing. I'm, I'm self-determining. That is, I, 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 nothing controls me. Nothing constrains me. I do that which I please. I'm completely independent. I'm completely sovereign over all my decisions, over all my actions, over everything that I've made. I'm self-existent. I'm self-determining. I'm self-sufficient. I don't need anything at all. I don't need anything to keep me going. I don't need anything other than me to make me happy. I don't need anything other than me to sustain my existence. I simply, I simply am. And you said, well, 
that's mysterious. I don't, I don't know anyone like that. And so I simply say, what is there about unfathomable that you don't understand? Think about that for a minute. It is unfathomable in that sense. This is God we're talking about. We try to box him up and make him in our own image or define him in a way that, that, that we think he ought to be or should be. And he said, no, 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 no. I'm not that. I am. I am who I am. You, you may think me like this or you may think me like that, but, but, but I am that who what I am. And he says that to Moses. Now, that's really good news to the Hebrews. It's really good news to Moses. Because you see, if this is true, if this one whom Moses sees in this bush is really the I am, is really the self-existent one, the self-determining one, the self-sufficient, sustaining one, this one who needs no one, this one, therefore, is then all-powerful. This one, therefore, is all-knowing. This one, therefore, who has authority over everything. Then who can stop him? And if God says, this is what I'm going to do, then surely he can do it. And as he calls Moses and says, I'm going to do this, Moses, And I am with you, Moses. Therefore, Moses, what you're about to do will be done. Moses, what you're called to do, I will do. You can trust me on that. Are you sufficient? Of course not, Moses. But remember who you are. When you ask me, who am I? I said, I'm with you. And so being identified by and with me, then this will uh, come to pass. And notice uh, the, the sign that, that he gives them. And this is in verse 12 of chapter 3. He says, But I'll be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That's, that's rather after the fact sign, right? He says, Here's what I want you to do I want you to deliver the people. And you know that I am with you, and you will know that I have been with you. When the people are delivered and they're worshiping me, serving me on this mountain. It's rather like when I'm driving down a road that I don't know, which is most of them, uh, with my sense of direction. But, but I'm riding down, riding, uh, down the road and Siri says, uh, turn right onto highway whatever. But yet there's no sign that it really is that highway. Have you ever been in that situation? And you're turning, maybe the sign was back there and you missed it, or maybe there isn't one. Uh, but, but, you, So you turn, and you're thinking, I hope this is right. And then about a half a mile down the road is a sign, and it's a highway. You go, that's it. Well, that's kind of what what Moses was up against here. He says, you'll know when you see it. Because you see, God will be identifying himself, will be defining himself through his action. In fact, if you would ask an Israelite, who is God? They'll tell you the story of Exodus. They'll tell you what he did. 
And they will say, that's who God is. In fact, he makes it more explicit. I won't read the whole book of Exodus to you, but he makes it more explicit in chapter 6 and verse 2. God spoke to Moses and I said to him, I am the Lord. See it in capital letters. Which is really a bit redundant to say, I am the one who is the I am. But I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, what does he mean by that? It isn't that they didn't know this name particularly. It's that is that he hadn't delivered them yet. He hadn't made them his people. Because you see, this word Lord is really the covenant name of God. And we say that, we mean this is the name that he gives to his people. This is the name that he gives to us to know him by so that we'll know that we're his people and that he is our God. But keep your finger there in in, in Exodus 2 and flip back to Exodus 3 for just a moment. And he says to them about his name, this is in verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. So the question we're asking now is, what does this name really mean? Uh, this name Yahweh. You, you need to remember this all the time. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me. So he's come to me. He says, I've observed you. I know you. And what, you've, and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise. See, this is the name that we're to attach to the promise of God. The covenant of God is promised to us. I promise I'll bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and so forth. And so that's the promise. That's the covenant. And so he says then in chapter 6 that he did appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But he hadn't yet made this people his people as he was going to. So verse 4. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they are lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, And with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. And I'll give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. He says, you can bank on this. This is who I am. If you want to know who I am, look at what I do. What am I going to do? I am going to deliver you. I'm going to deliver you from your slavery. I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to take you. And I will bring you into the land that I swore to you. So what do we see, you see? We see God making this people 
His. And we see the holiness of God in His judgment upon all the gods of Egypt. You know the story. You know what happens in Egypt. You know the plagues that come one after another, after another, after another, until the final judgment comes against Pharaoh and his household and against his elder son, his, the eldest sons. And, and you know that. And you know that God redeems his people. He takes this sacrifice of this lamb and, and, and the people of Israel, his people, live under it, you see, under the blood of this lamb and that are taken out. And we see the, the holiness of of God as he judges and we see the power of God as he delivers when he delivers them and he ultimately delivers them you remember by way of the Red Sea because even after the Israelites leave uh, Egypt you remember that Pharaoh gets upset and he sends his army after them and, and you know the wonderful picture of, of, of the Israelites going through this, this sea that's opened up before them and, uh, and that's miracle enough but even greater miracle as he must have dried up the riverbed so they wouldn't get stuck in it. And all of that taking place, and they went across, all of them, perhaps three million of them. And, and then the army of Pharaoh came, and we see the power of God as he judges. And he delivers to the holiness of God and the power of God. And then we see the grace of God. For he redeems his people. And he brings them then in Exodus 20 to the mountain to serve him, to worship him. And again, there's great fire and smoke. It's almost as if the burning bush has been reenacted, except in a bigger scene. And there they are before the mountain, and they worship the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so who am I? What's my name? What's the Lord? And what does that mean? It means you're the one who delivers your people from their slavery. That's what it means. And so he says, have no other gods before me. And of course, why would they want to? Why would they want to serve any other God other than this one who delivered them from their slavery? He says, I am. See, it's all about who he is. It's all about his identity. Who is he really? I'll turn quickly to John in chapter 8. John in chapter 8, please. We find here Jesus in conversation with religious leaders. And as you might understand from your knowledge of Jesus and his interactions with religious leaders, that uh, they're not terribly happy with him. And he's having a discussion with him. And the discussion that he's having with them, whether they know it or not, is all about the identity of Jesus. See, that's the question. We'll grapple with it in the weeks to come. But that's the question. Who really is he? It's the same question that Moses Ask of God, who are you really? What's your name? Who are you really? Are you really God? Can I really trust you? And see, that's the question of the ages. Every conversation I get into about Christianity with anyone must 
move to the identity of Jesus. It has to. And that's why John wrote his gospel and the others as well. You remember at the end of John's gospel, he says, I've written these things so that you know that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Christ, and that you might have life by believing in his name. It's all about Jesus. It's not so much what Jesus taught particularly. It's what Jesus said about himself. And it's what Jesus did because of who he really is. And so here, Jesus is having this conversation with these religious leaders and, and they're bantering back and forth. Who, who are you and who am I? And they keep saying they're sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, well, if you're a son of Abraham, you'd believe me. And they say, well, we're sons of God. And he says, no, 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 no. You're really the sons of your father who is the devil. Well, you can imagine they got a little upset with that. And so then they began to say, no, 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 we're really children of, of Abraham. And so in verse 54 of John 8, Jesus answered them, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you've not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I'd be a liar, like you. But I do know Him and keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus, in a sense, at that point, as they understood him, was simply saying he's 2,000 years old or thereabouts. Verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him because stoning was the penalty for blasphemy making yourself out to be God but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple see that moment Jesus is running them all the way back to Exodus 3 and when they would ask the question "Then who are you really he would be able to say I am I'm the God of the covenant and he would be able to say you'll know me by what I do in the same way that you know Yahweh by what he did what did Yahweh do well in his holiness he brought judgment and in his power he delivered and in his grace he brought his people out of their enslavement and Jesus is saying I'm going to do the same thing in my holiness you'll see judgment You want to know what the holiness of God in judgment looks like? Look at the cross. You want to know the wrath of God poured out? Look at the cross. Because there was Jesus. He lost everything. All of his dignity is stripped down and beaten. He was embarrassed publicly. No one stood up for him. Everything was lost. He was even forsaken by his father. How much more could be lost? What? Hell could be worse than that. You see the holiness of God in Jesus. He says, I'm the holiness of God. And we see, of course, the power of God is as he overcomes the enemy, sin and death. He overcomes it by the resurrection of Jesus. And then, of course, we see the grace of God as he delivers us.
as he saves us, as he forgives us, as he reconciles us to himself, as he redeems us. Who is Jesus? I am. That's who he is. That's who he is. And in the same way, as Moses could depend upon the promises of I am, we can depend upon the work and the promises of Jesus to deliver us and to cause us to arrive safely that we would be his people and he would be our God. And we must never fear. We must always identify with him for he is our God. Let's pray, Father. I pray for us that today and in these weeks to come that it would be increasingly clear to us. I trust for us it is already clear for many, but I bet it would be clearer and clearer for us that we are your people, you are our God. That we needn't fear that no matter what takes place in the world in which we live, still we know that you're Promises will come to fruition because you're the one who is self-existent and the one who is self-determining and the one who is self-sufficient. And no one controls you. That you're powerful. That you have authority over all things. And that all your promises will come to pass. And so we're grateful. So even now in this life, we can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We rejoice today in the wedding of Dylan and Alyssa. And so with the Ballinger and Redmond families, we're filled with joy. We thank you for this wonderful glimpse of your goodness to us. And for all the other blessings that many of us feel on this day that we have, be they in our families, be they with our work, be they in our own walk with you as you form Christ in us. And we're grateful. So weep with those who weep. We grieve with David Miller and the loss of his wife Marjorie. We grieve with Lori Lang and her family and the loss of her dad. And we grieve with Mary Harvey and her family and the loss of her mom for others who suffer loss in various ways. We grieve, but we grieve not as those who have no hope, because we do have hope. That hope is reunion with all other believers and also eternity with Christ. Father, there are those who are suffering in our own country and around the world because of the storms, uh, because of storms, uh, weather and because of the storms of war and terror and because of hatred and racism and we pray that your hand would not be so short but that you could reach down and save because people are suffering to see their own weakness and need and call upon you I pray Help us, a nation, help us as a nation enable all of us, including our leaders, to speak to one another 
respectfully, without vulgarity even, to those whose actions and views we may disagree, even those who may be our enemies. May we as followers of Christ exemplify the admonition of James when he tells us that true religion is that which bridles the tongue, and may we be people whose speech shows not hatred but love that seeks to produce not division but peace. Help us as a group of people, as your people, to model how we're to interact and speak to and relate to one another. Father, we're grateful that you have made us to be your people. We're grateful that you are our God. And I pray that our identity would be as a people with whom and in whom God dwells. And that that very fact would shape us in every way. That it would shape how we think. It would shape our emotions. It would shape what we say. It would shape what we do. And this all to your glory. Even as we anticipate that wonderful day when you come and you take your people home. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.